Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucking ears, what the fuck nicks. This is Mark Marin. This is WTF, the podcast that you've grown to uh, enjoy. I'm walking down the streets of New York City right now. Have not been to New York City in a few months, but it is a beautiful fall day. There is nothing better than a fall day in New York City. You know, people are out. They're not all exhausted and sweaty from the humidity. They're dressed, uh, you know, slightly. They're dressed comfortably, but uh, you can just tell that they're they're filled with a vitality that has eluded them for the entire summer because it was drained out of them because of the relentless humidity. I haven't been here, but man, it is great. New York City is just like I don't know how to explain it, but I just walking down the street. I'm down here by uh, I don't know by where I used to live years ago, around 23rd Street and Third Avenue. Uh, it's just just walking down the street. I saw a guy hawk something up and spit it onto the street that it, it was it was it was an amazing moment it, it, and, and no one noticed it it was just one of those beautiful moments of humanity where this dude was just lumbering down the street and just and in something i don't know you, you just don't see it every day in in mixed company and then i then there was the parade of methadone addicts which i didn't even think existed anymore oh shit there's a dunkin donuts dunkin donuts coffee i don't know what is in that but fuck now i'm not gonna have any yeah the parade of methadone addicts and then like there's just one after the other just emaciated well-dressed women smoking cigarettes and moving very quickly it's i i love this city i don't know if those are three examples of why you would love new york city but there's a lady in gym pants with her dog who has oh christ a ribbon in its hair look i am heading over to um that guy looks exhausted there's just so many people. You're just a part of one big organism here. I love it. I love it. I love being back here. So I'm heading over. How you doing, man? See, even I can walk down the street talking to myself into a microphone and, and not get very much attention. If I'm getting any attention, it's like, what the hell is that guy up to? Does he want to talk to me? No, I don't. I'm heading over to Ira Glass. I'm heading over to his office, to his studio and office. You know Ira Glass from This American Life. Uh, obviously, many of you know him. He is a defining voice in public radio. I reached out. He said, "Sure, we're going to do this." Now, I, I I like Ira. I you know I enjoy listening to This American Life. I enjoy the knowing what's going to happen, knowing that like there's Ira, there's his forceful yet precious tone, his uh, his curiosity and and. You know, there, there's also something that just seems so perfect and, and fragile and smart about This American Life that sometimes I, I resent it, although I know when I'm listening to it, as much as I find it slightly annoying how precious and smart and efficient it is that I will be squirting out tears out of my face. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the guy. I don't know much about him, but I've decided that we're, we're both in the same racket. We're both... Uh, we're both microphone guys, and uh, and we're both Jews, and I, I think he's a different sort of Jew than me. I'd like to hear him say fuck. I don't know if he will. That is not, obviously not going to be the thrust of the interview, but uh, 
I'd love it if I were told some sex stories, but I don't know that that's going to happen. He's a respectable guy. See, that's what I, I think I keep coming around to. Oh, shit, I just missed a street because I'm talking to you guys. Jesus. Is that I feel crass. I feel slightly lowbrow all over the place, raw nerve energy with just a peppering of anger and filthiness. And I think Ira is like, like he, is, he is higher than the rest of us somehow. He's, he's a, 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 a better man, a bigger man, a smarter man, a man in control of his game. So I don't know what's going to happen. But I think it's a, it's a meeting of two distinctly different types of, of, uh, of uh, I'm going to say aggressive Jew radio personalities. Because I think he's obviously aggressive in his own way. It's just so much easier on the spirit than my particular form of expression. But I am nervous. Uh, I'm a little nervous because I'm going to his studio, which means his mics are going to be there. I don't know if he, he was thinking that you know we would record on his equipment, but that's not going to happen. I brought, my, uh, I brought my, my rig. I'm talking in it right now. I'm going to try not to let him sit in his chair because, you know, I, being a radio guy, you know, you get in your chair, you get behind your mic. All of a sudden, it's your show. This is my show. My, what? This is my show. Comes in a bag. It's got a mic, two mics. So that's how we're going to go at it. Hey, buddy, you do shaves? You do? Okay. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Right. Maybe I'll come back. I like getting shaves. Uh... There's so many restaurants here. And the, all of them have people in it. Oh, I used to eat at that place. South Indian Vegetarian Kosher Restaurant. Madras Mahal. I used to eat the buffet there. How, where else would you see that? South Indian Vegetarian Kosher Restaurant. That is unbelievable. Look, there's people eating right now. It's not dinner time. Everything. This, you know what? I miss New York, but I wouldn't want to live here because I'm drained. Just walking down the street. There's another one of those well-dressed, emaciated women moving quickly, smoking a cigarette. Beautiful people here. It's a very sexual city. Anyways, I wonder what Ira thinks of that. Ah, I can ask Ira about that. Had two slices of pizza today. I had to eat them at uh, Bella Napoli up on 49th Street. I like that place. They do a grandma slice, it's called. It's a thin, a thin crust Sicilian... Look, I'm not going to start with the food. I'll, I'll turn this back on when I get to Ira's. Sign in. It's Ira, right? That's Ira, right? American Life. Yeah, yeah, American Life. You, you listen to that show? American Life? No, I don't even know what station you are. Oh. Hey, uh, all right. station you are. NPR. So it'd be WNYC. It's a very good show. I think that if you uh, if you told Ira your story, he would put you on the radio. Where are you from? You mean originally? Yeah. Guyana. Guyana. Yeah, it sounds like a This American Life story already. Do you, got, do you have a family still there? Yeah. Yeah. That, it sounds like something could happen. You'll do the rest? Thank you very much. I'm telling you, you could be on the show. Guyana. Okay, this is, um, I don't know, it's not what I expected. 
Oh, it's old style. Oh boy. Oh. This is a whole operation here. Hi. Hi, I'm Mark Marin. Yeah, I'm going to interview Ira Glass. I, th- I hope so. Yeah, that's him. I'm, I can recognize him. Yes. Hello. Yes, sir. Hi, Ira. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Oh, you look different than your illustration on the podcast. Yeah, I'm not. I'm the different. Uh, I look. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I've done something different. I'm trying to look like you. And uh, and now I'm going in the opposite direction. So. Oh, so we're going there. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you're going to cut loose, and I'm going to tighten up. Exactly. What's going on? Are we going to do this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm waiting. Uh, but um, let me hand this off to him. Okay. Let me just, um, uh, I'll just do one. Okay. All right. You can come back and Okay. Hi. Hello. I have coffee. All right. This is amazing. Everybody who works here looks exactly like I thought they would. <laughs> I don't know either. I'm going to leave that open. Okay, yeah, so you got your tea, I've got my coffee. Okay, so, so, this is, so this is the studio that we do the show out of, and it is always a disappointment I'm opening the door. This is it? Yeah, this is it. Oh my god. It's tiny, right? Where's your chair? Well, normally I sit there. You can't I'm sit there the today. All right, so you'll sit there. Yeah, here's what we're going to do. I know you've got a board, and we could do it on your equipment, but I decided that we have to break ritual. I don't want to spill that on the keyboard. Have you ever done that? No. Back when we were in Chicago, we had this huge, huge, uh, stu- beautiful studio at WBEZ. But when we moved here, um, we tried to just build something fast and cheap. And, uh, and this is what you got? This, yeah, and it's not even really soundproof. And the architect blames the construction guys, and the construction guys blame the architect. And we never got to the bottom of it. Look at this. is American life. Yeah. But this is the whole thing. This is the... Well, I mean, you know, it's... it's Except for the bureau in uh, in Israel and the bureau in uh, West Pennsylvania. Yeah. So so yeah. No. So there's a little mixing console with six uh, inputs and uh, and then you know a couple of CD players, a couple of phono units, an ISDN line. So we're about. Yeah, I think you're a little older than me, right? You how old are you? Fifty one. I'm forty. I'm going to be forty seven. So I'm not a, that much difference. Oh, the, under the rule of Rabiglia's wife, that means that you'll treat me well in this interview because she says that in your podcast. You suck up to anybody who's older, and you're mean to anybody who's younger. Your wife says that about no, me? No, Birbiglia's wife says this. Mike Birbiglia's wife says that about you. No, I'm not She g- says that's the rule of the Mark Marin podcast. Apparently she's, somebody- like, She's like, you're totally safe because you're, you're older than Somebody has, has rules. Somebody has created <laughs> rules that there's some, there's some rule to my podcast. Well, that's like saying it's not a rule. It's like she, she's more of an anthropologist to observe this in the field through, through, through observation. Uh-huh. Well, I, look, I, I uh, obviously I'm going to be pleasant. I'm not. This is not an investigative piece, but I, I think that there's some things I need to know because I feel like we're both microphone talkers. Okay. And and that I've I've listened to your show and I know what's going to happen. You know, even if uh, uh, see the thing that that I don't know about you is where do you come from? Okay. And and like let's say let's go like 12 years old. Were you bar mitzvah? Yeah. Yeah. And, and where? Uh, Baltimore. I'm from suburban Baltimore. Really? And you come from a large Jewish family? No, I, I have an older sister and a younger sister. That's it. And then not a lot of cousins, not a lot of... Uh, it's a pretty small family, actually. But your your father's cousin is Philip Glass, is that true? Yeah. Now, so that means you're at the family gatherings and there's Philip Glass. No, I've never seen him once at any family 
uh, holiday, wedding, funeral, nothing. Never. I've never. In fact, I didn't really know Philip until um, five or six years ago. Really? You like, know. see, I had pictured this thing because when I read that, I was like, "Oh my God!" They have these family gatherings, and and you know, Philip Glass. Everyone gathers around his new composition, and they go, "We don't understand it, but we think he's a genius." And that didn't happen. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there was like, no, no, no. There was like, there was a divorce in in their generation, and so oh. people sort of grew up, I think, pretty far from each other. I think Philip is really, Philip is definitely really close with his siblings mm-hmm. and sees them a lot, and I think that they might have that experience that you're describing. But not you. But not but not us. So now in let's say you're fifteen years old, sixteen years old, you've got a car. Yeah. What what would we be listening to if we're driving in your car? Well, in in the mornings in Baltimore, um in the Plymouth satellite that, that I was driving, the yellow Plymouth satellite yeah. that used to be Grandma Frida's but that I ended up with. Um, I would be listening to in the mornings it would be Johnny Walker, who was this sort of early proto shock jock. Who uh, I got my first job in radio when I was in high school. Yeah, uh, writing jokes for him. Really, my, my first job was writing jokes. That's interesting because I just did an interview with Judd Apatow, who also started you know his obsession with comedy very young at sixteen. So when you were in the car, what, what kind of music were you listening to? I mean, truthfully, like music wasn't a big part of my life. Like I mean, I listened to whatever was on the radio. I mean, I remember actually when I was a kid, uh, Mark Nasdor, uh, my best friend from across the street at one point tried to engage me in a debate over who was better, the Beatles or the Monkees. And I remember thinking, like, wait, I'm supposed to have an opinion on this? Like, I really wasn't. Well, that one you should definitely have had an opinion on. But I, I, I just I was not inside the world of music in that way. I wasn't cool. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, when I, was in my, when I was in junior high school, I did magic tricks. I did children's parties. I, um, uh, I made animal balloons. In really? fact, in fact, yeah. In fact, I just brought. I just started doing animal balloons again on stage because I did it once, and people were so blown away that I could make animal balloons. Can you do it fast? Yeah, I could totally do it fast. Can you make swan hat? I could. Yeah, I'm not so into the swan hat. But which ones are your favorites? I mean, I mean, I, would, I can make. A, I can make a very credible uh, Snoopy. Really? That really looks like Snoopy. Uh-huh. I can do an elephant. Uh, I can do a poodle. I can do a little mouse. I can do lovebirds. I huh. probably could do more if I thought about it, but those are the ones I remember. What's your uh, version of the swan hat? I mean, it's just a bat. I, the swan, the swan shape, the the neck of the swan, yeah. I always found kind of problematic to make it say, stay in shape. Oh, so you couldn't do it? You don't have anything against the? Oh, um, I don't have anything against it because that for me the the kids would be more excited about that when you're like, come here, I'll put this on your head. Oh, I oh, I could do a hat. I just don't like the swan part. Okay, so but let's let's go over that. So now you're you're like a 15 year old kid, and you're entranced by radio. No, you, no, no. So how did no. you end up writing jokes for a for a, a, a the prototype of the shock jock or or, or a talker? For Johnny anyways. Walker. Yeah. I mean, he. Um, it wasn't that I loved radio. It's that he seemed cool. Okay. Like every every 15 year old suburban kid suburban boy anyway in Baltimore thought he was really cool right and we all listened to him and in the mid like being being a kid being a teenager in the mid 70s that's right when Saturday Night Live started right and um, so there was a lot of like cool meant comedy for like a few years there and uh, and so that just seemed like something exciting to do like in, in college in my early years in college I tried improv comedy and a troupe actually one of the people went on to Saturday Night Live who Gary Kroger he wasn't in for very long. He was like one of those transitional casts in between. Yeah, the, I kind of like, remember it. I kind of yeah. remember it. What in in terms of um, in terms of what drew you to radio? How did you get involved with that at sixteen? What what drove you to to Walker's show? I needed something to do for the summer my senior year, and I had like a job making pizza, 
and uh, and uh, at that point, I had stopped doing magic tricks at children's parties. I love your show. You know, I listen to your show. I know I'm going to cry, and uh, every time that I listen to your show, I do know that uh, when, sometimes when I'm listening to it, I'm like, is it possible that you know he's just cool? And and you know, you, you, in in terms of like the the way you conduct an interview that that every, you, you seem very deliberate and very you know you know sort of softly forceful and and very compassionate and 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 then I, then I get mad at you because because uh, I'm like you know how does uh why does he have such a, a big heart on the radio Where, does does Ira Glass ever say fuck you know that kind of stuff yeah I definitely say fuck in real life there's a lot more cursing really than on the radio do you, of course do you yell? all the time. Like, are you running around here? Like, are the people that I just passed in the hallways frightened of you? No, like, like, or not, not frightened of me yelling. I feel like, I, I mean, in my early days running the show, I think I had a passive-aggressive style that was really dreadful for the people I worked with, like, where, where, where um, I would get very, very mean to them. But I wasn't even totally aware I was being mean. I just thought, like, well, this is the way we're going to do it. This is obviously the right way. Like anybody who who, who could hear this piece would know that you you take the music out there and then you got to do this. And you know, just I think that that I was pretty bad. But um, but people were were um, politely forceful in letting me know uh, that uh, that that I was being a bad boss. And and I feel like now the show's been on for fifteen years, and and I feel like I got a lot better. Like I feel like. I feel like that's always in me, ready to happen. A kind of very deep bossiness of like just wanting it my way. But at this point now, everybody on the staff or most of the staff is as skilled as I am. And so it's much more like being in a, in a, in a band that's been together for a long time. Like, like, like we've gone through a lot together and we all kind of, every, it, it, and sometimes it's hard to make a decision truthfully because we'll just, if, like usually we usually will come to decisions like everybody will agree right or nearly everybody but like sometimes we just disagree and then it's really hard to figure out how to have a tiebreaker sort of um, and 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 who usually uh who usually wins out i mean either either i mean either i or my senior producer Joey snyder wins out mm-hmm. um and uh and usually whoever wins out is like whoever it means the most to the story you know I mean? like like whoever like feels the most strongly like 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 generally like you know we have to go through so much material that we all understand like we don't have to put it all out on the line like if i think that a one story idea isn't a great idea but everybody else you know or a lot of people think like yeah yeah let's keep going with it like i'll keep going with it and keep going with it and keep going with it um with the thought of like okay well it might be right and i might be wrong and truthfully, like, like there have been in the last couple of years, there have been a number of things that we that we've done that I was completely against for a really long time. That turned out to be the very best things we did. Like, like we won, like last year we won two awards at the Third Coast Audio Festival, and both of them were for stories. I thought like, this is not going to work at all. And uh, one of them was this story about uh, uh, kids who were being raised, uh, boys who were being raised as girls. Mm-hmm. And uh, and their parents letting them do that, right? And I just thought, like, well, this has been covered, and there was a really good piece in NPR about this at all. And what are we really adding? And Julie Snyder, the senior producer, was very, very forcefully feeling like, no, there's this one way that it could work if we confine it to this one scene. And she turned out to be a hundred percent right. And I think it it won some big award. And then 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 there was another story that you the same thing. I was sort of against it, and I was like, all right, 
She thinks so, and then we did it. And That's then interesting. She was right, right. I, I want to get into to what makes a, a good story and what makes a good uh, This American Life episode in, in a minute. But, but I, can I can I can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. Like, like one of the things that I've noticed about your podcast is I feel, I feel like as as a as a broadcaster, I feel like there's a couple of things you do that are so much better than I'm capable of doing, and and one of them is that I feel like you're just a much better talker than I am. I think I think I think innately. Um, you have the ability to sit in front of the microphone and just talk. I mean, maybe it just comes from doing stand-up and being used to just getting in front of people and just 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 talking in a way that has a lot of feeling and a lot of heart. But I don't think I expose myself that much on the air. Um, like, I bet I don't expose my my own feelings about anything in a year as much as you expose in any 10 minutes that begin any of your podcasts. And I think, I think just as a personality type, like, I came to being on the air after a decade of being an editor, you know, mm-hmm. and a producer. And, uh, and I think that that's still in me. And, well, and, in, and in all the work I do, I, f- I, feel like, I feel like I hide way, way more. And I have to remind myself to, to I mean, I don't have to remind myself to react to, to the people who I'm talking to and to be in the story in that way. But, but I don't do that much stuff that's really about my feelings. And, um, and, uh, and and I feel like it's not it's not necessarily my strength. Like even even in person, I feel like I'm always having to, in a conversation, push myself to talk about myself. And I feel in general, like just by disposition, much more comfortable um, asking people questions and and listening to people and observing people. And and I feel like my strength in the show is really as an editor. And then I feel like I can perform the show well enough, and I can write the show well enough. Um, but. But the part of the doing of the radio show that I like the most is actually the, the the editing. Well, that's yeah. I mean, my my producer Brendan McDonald, who's a genius with that. You know, I trust him exclusively with that because it's not my strong suit. And I really appreciate uh, you saying that. But but what's interesting to me about you saying that is that I don't know what the history of it is, but your voice and and the style of your show uh, now defines NPR. And and I know it wasn't always like that Be, because if you, you know, coming at it from when you did, it's 15 years ago and you started in radio. So what happened after you wrote Jokes for Walker? I mean, how did you get to NPR? Well, I wrote folks, Jokes for Walker, so, so it's like 1977. What kind of jokes? Like, did you sit there in the room with this guy who did no, you No, not in the room him? with him. No, not in the room with him. No, to me, he was like an iconic figure. He was like, like somebody on the radio. Like, how I did you feel when you met him? I was really in awe and he was a really sweet guy. But he was somebody who I had heard on the radio, and I was always a little nervous around him. I never stopped being nervous around him, and he could not have been like a nicer guy. But I remember um, I sent him, you know, three pages of jokes, and and what what Walker would do is he he did um, he did like a, a Johnny Walker little news of the morning that was like the Johnny Carson monologue. You right, know, there were topical jokes right. about stuff happening around Baltimore, national stuff. And um, and he was like a local figure. He put out books, like he would do events, and thousands of people would show sure. up. And it was like a little risque in a way of like radio in the seventies. You know what I mean? And uh, did he play music as well? He played. He was he was a DJ. Right. Yeah, he was a DJ who would talk in between, and then he had lots of sound carts, which would have like people laughing and applause oh, and yeah, like yeah. a crowd. It was like a whole. So watching at that time, when if you were in the studio, it was super it, fun. Yeah, because like, yeah, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of things going Actual on. Actual noisemakers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. In this in this way that was really really amazing. And yeah. I remember I would go in the morning down to WFBR, the AM station that he was on. And you know, go down at five thirty in the morning and deliver the jokes uh, to him, and uh, and the jokes were like jokey jokes, you know, like they were like 
you know, they were just corny. I mean, looking back, like they weren't sophisticated jokes. They were like, at the very best, they were like the monologue on like a late night it's talk It's just funny show. because I couldn't imagine you writing jokes or doing jokes. Well, I wasn't very good. I wasn't very good. But he, how long did he keep you around? Well, he wasn't, you know, he would give me, you know, he would throw me $15. Come here, kid. Go get yourself sort a of sandwich. Like, he would really, like, yeah. he would get a couple of jokes out of it yeah. each day. <laughs> but he was helping you out. I think, like, I think that, I, I think that. Were you a lonely kid? No, I had friends and stuff. Oh. No, no, no. It's more just like I think he just thought like, oh, what the hell? Yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. like, I might get something out of this. Like, yeah. who knows where this will go? And uh, and I would go down and watch him do the show for a little while, and then uh-huh. I'd go. And so, how'd you end up at NPR? That must have put a bug in your brain enough for you to stay in radio. You must have become it, fascinated at some point. If anything, at the end of that summer, I was convinced I could not be Johnny Walker. Like, I understood that I was not a joke writer and I was not a jokester. Were you a, a radio personality, though? No. Like, he, in, fact, if, in fact, at the end of the summer, he said, like, you're going to go off to college. It's your freshman year of college. Like, you and I, like, let me record a little demo for you so you can get on your college station. And I was like, no. Like, it made me so scared. I was like, I, I know that I'll be terrible. I don't want to get in front of the microphone. And especially to be in front of the microphone in front of him. Mm-hmm. would just have been horrifying and uh and so like no no he was like a super nice guy he was this figure in baltimore like I, I can't get across like what a big deal it was like i sent him off these jokes to the radio station and i got a phone call from him and it was him which was shocking that somebody from like the radio would be calling me at home and then he said i'll send over my man to get you and he sent her he had a limo he yeah, had a yeah. limo and, and i realized in retrospect i think it's because he had so many duis in his youth that, <laughs> that he couldn't drive yeah. so he had a limo yeah. and this african-american guy this older african-american guy who drove the limo and he sent over a limo I had never been in a limo and he drove me to a part of Baltimore that I had never been in which is like this sort of richy rich part uh-huh. uh, Rowan Park and he had this like really what seemed to me to be a really big house though yeah. in retrospect like not that big right. and he had these paintings on the wall that looked like um, Rembrandt's mm-hmm. Like, you know, this sort of super, like, chiaroscuro, like, like spots of light defining the figures. And they looked like old, old paintings. But then when you looked at the figures, you realized, like, oh, it's the Beatles in, like, helmets. And you know what I mean? Like, and I just thought, like, he was, like, the coolest. It was, like, the coolest thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, yeah. he, and he had some sort of, like, video projection systems. And he had a copy of Star Wars, I remember, which had just come out. On and he Betamax? had on a v- Yeah, on, like, whatever VHS, format it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, his whole life was crazy. Uh, that was, like, it. That it was, was like, yeah. Was and I knew, like, that was not... That was not for me. I was more no. I was definitely not heading for that, and um, and so no. I came out of that and 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 went off to uh, Northwestern, and uh, and was a radio TV film pre med major and uh, and then covering all the bases, huh? My parents pre-med were sure that I should be a doctor, right? And uh, were you at all? I mean, I mean, I mean, I didn't know that I didn't want to be, and 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 I. It wasn't well clear make what them happy. Gonna... You might, you know, yeah, for exactly. For at least two years, you could tell them you were still pre-med. Well, and they they kept at it. Like my mom didn't drop that until my mid thirties. Like I I was on like I remember it was after I was on David Letterman. She finally said, <laughs> she finally said like, oh maybe it's okay if you don't go to med school. Like I'm really? gonna let that go. It yeah, took yeah, that no, long? no, no. I had my own like national radio show. What what uh, what 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 business is your uh, father in? My dad's an accountant. Oh, so it was like they they wanted they wanted me secure. to they they were like they, they were weren't, afraid, right? You know, you have your book Jews and your money Jews, and they sure. weren't book Jews; they were money Jews, right? And they were like, and because they both grew up in really poor households, and the sure. drama of their life was like getting to financial security, and so the thought that that wasn't what 
any other kids were going to do was really terrifying. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a misunderstanding that some people have about their parents is that you know they're not stifling you because they want you to do something because they're thinking for themselves. They're not. They're not thinking. It's not narcissistic. No, they're, they're frightened. Yes, that you will be uh, lost. Yeah, or broke. Right. And it took me a long time to do that because I think a lot of people fight with their parents, sort of like, you know, fuck you. Why was that an issue with your parents? They wanted you to like get get a real job. What my parents were so you know bad at parenting, really, and and really were uh, emotionally you know not uh, cut out for it that they just assumed I would make do somehow because I was a fairly charismatic kid. But there was a point there where I, I uh, uh, you know I I just screwed up in high school. I barely made it out of high school, and uh, the last year because I always was one of those people that was uh you know mark just doesn't apply himself he's really bright like as a fuck you i i got straight a's and you know got into college and then i i did the pre-med thing i said i was for a year but i i just don't i don't have the discipline to to keep studying relentlessly i i didn't yeah. see the payoff of it yeah what did you what, did you end up doing well in college yeah i did fine in college like i, I was i was super hard worker were you taking biology classes yeah no i went up all the way through organic chemistry and and uh like like you know I could have kept going with it. I mean, after my freshman year, I worked in the shock trauma unit at University of Maryland Hospital for part of the summer. And then the other part of the summer, I just looked for something in the media. And and that and basically, I went around to all the radio stations and TV stations and ad agencies. Looking in, for what in, exactly? In Baltimore, looking for anything. Like, I didn't even know what I was looking for. So you really had no idea that you were going to be a radio person. Nothing at all. No, I had no special feeling about radio. If anything, like like most people, like I was interested in TV. Like I had no interest at all. But what was the point? Radio. Was there a point where you had a, a human experience that like was compelling yeah. you towards? Yeah, yeah. And the, the human experience was that in looking for a job that summer after my freshman year, somebody at like the rock station at the album oriented rock station. I remember in the basement on Ricerstown Road in Baltimore. Yeah, he was like, "Well, I, don't, I can't give you anything. You know, we don't have interns." Like, I, but but a friend of mine from University of Maryland, he's working at this outfit, National Public Radio, in Washington D.C. And this is 1978, so NPR had only existed for six years. And uh, and he's like, you know, see this guy, and maybe he's got something for you. And so I went to NPR in D.C., ha- never having heard of them or heard them on the air. Yeah. And, um, I mean, most people hadn't heard of them. They were yeah. tiny. Yeah. And uh, and just kind of talk, talked my way in with this guy um, and uh, and create, got them to create, like, a summer internship for me in their promo department. And I, like, wrote promos for them. And For NPR? You wrote promos for NPR? For the individual shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They Because, you know, if you think about it, they've got daily shows that have to turn on a promo every sure, day. Sure, no, yeah. The show. And, and, then, and then one of the producers was on staff. This is really early in NPR. He was on staff just to invent new ways to do documentaries. And uh, his, name, his name was Keith Talbot. And I would do... Because I had a lot of time on my hands, because I'm the intern, um, I would do promos for his shows that would recreate the sounds of those shows. So he would have original music, and he would have like they were really beautiful, beautiful shows. Actually, a lot more innovative than the show I do now. Wait, you said so there were a lot of sound textures. There would be external stuff, and there would be internal stuff, and there would be music. And he would do stuff or... like he would have the characters and the stories narrate the stories, and he did stuff that was like that. This the shows just felt like nothing I'd ever heard on the radio and and he was working with this one one guy and 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 so basically I did stuff for him and he was impressed that anybody in the promo department was actually aspiring to anything and he was impressed that I could actually make the promos feel just like the shows and he hired me he gave me a paid job 
the following summer as his production assistant. And then from there, I basically just jumped from job to job to job because he was really he was a really amazing person to work for. And and now now and so half of everything I know about radio I learned from him while producing stories for him. So the, and what was the show mm-hmm. called? I mean, it went under different names. It was called Radio Experience. It was called Options. It was part of a series called Options. Like it went from name to name to name. But how was that moment where where you had heard the show that you know you you you'd been involved in radio and radio had an effect on your life, just whether or in not, a really small way? Well, I guess, but I mean, but it sounds to me that even when you were listening to Walker or working for Walker, that even if it was just on, yeah. the guy had an effect on your life. Yeah, that 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 radio had an effect on your life. And that that mystery of radio, because when, when I was in, in high school, there used to be this junior high, this kid, this guy, Bobby Box on KQEO uh, AM, who, you know, everyone listened to. And I remember when, you know, he came to host a dance at our school and he turned out to be a very, very short, very ugly man who wore a very unattractive suit. And there was that moment where you're like the illusion of radio is is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Uh, and, and so now you have this experience where you're at NPR and something this show affects you because the textures and the places you could go in your own mind because of the way this show was produced was overwhelming to you. It was overwhelming. It was exciting. And there was a guy who worked for him. Did you ever hear, you're from L.A. now, right? But how long yeah. have you been in L.A.? Not that long, since 2004. There's a guy who's been on the radio in L.A. for a long time named Joe Frank, who was on KCRW. And... uh he would just get on the mic. He would write these stories and tell these stories. And he had such a magnetic way of telling a story where the story would start and he had this incredible perform- – he was just an incredible performer. And just like the stories, you, you couldn't even figure out like where he was going or why you were still listening, but you could not turn it away, turn away from it. And at the time that I was working for Keith, Joe – he was producing Joe. And he's like, all right, well, the first, your first assignment is you're going to help this guy get his stuff out. And I had never had the experience of hearing something on the radio – like that was that good, you know what I mean? Like that seemed that seemed like that interesting. Like mm-hmm. I love Johnny Walker because it was funny mm-hmm. and because he seemed cool. Mm-hmm. But um, but I never heard something that was emotional in the way that like a great like movie was emotional and where you just get caught up in it and your feelings get caught up in it and 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 you just can't stop listening. Like I had never had that experience with the radio until I was working for Joe and for Keith. And that just got me really, really interested. That got me really uh, excited. And and so basically, I tried to just like learn how to do what they were doing. All the other parts of it, learning to write for radio, learning to perform on the mic, like all the other parts like that came very, very, very hard for me. And now when you say that... I'm going to be a reporter. Like, like I, I taught myself to be a reporter. And, and when when you when you say a reporter, it, there, it, when you're when you're conducting an interview, I mean, when you're listening to somebody, I mean, a reporter is, you know, when it comes to news, is one thing. But a, a reporter, when it comes to to emotions and having this follow through, where you you're acting when you're in the interview and you realize that there's some we can go deeper with this, and and there's a piece missing. You just you find that you do that instinctively. Where you do, you have a plan when you when you hear a general story that you're approaching. Well, it's both things. Like I have a plan. I definitely have a plan, but like the most interesting moments come from something just happens. Somebody's talking, and then you just follow them or lead them based on that thing that they say. And do you find that because I this is relatively new to me listening to people, and when you say that like I, I express more emotion in ten minutes than than you feel that you do uh, in general. Um, you know, when I talk to people, the only way I know how to do it is talk about myself and, and engage on that level. And then there, then I find that people talk almost, they, they, they want to talk and they no longer remember 
that they're having a conversation on microphones. Yeah. And and I'm dealing with professional people, and a lot of times you're dealing with with people who are not professional talkers. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but like, I think that would work with not you know with not professional talkers as well. What was your first break in terms of getting on the air? It's sort of like to say a break going on the air. It isn't like in other parts of show business or something you know like i like i had even with the even in those things i was doing with keith like i would appear in them sometimes because i would go out and get the tape and so that was like really early on but 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 in terms of just like doing something that was my own story i mean i kept trying to do it all through my 20s and uh i wouldn't well, going out finding stories finding subjects to interview pitching them to pitching them to editors getting them on the air and little things would get on the air, you know, now and then all the time. Um, but I wasn't very good at it. It took me, it took me until I was, I mean, I started this when I was, I started NPR when I was 19 and I would say I couldn't competently like go out and get a story and write a story that sounded anything like that sounded good until I was probably 27 or 28. And wow. I, feel, I feel like I don't say well, that. That sounds about of, right. I mean, you know, that, you know, eight years to really, you know, hone your craft on a microphone, that sounds normal for a comic, for anybody. Okay. To, to find your voice and to, to figure out to, how to be comfortable with it and, and to find your groove. That sounds about right. Okay. Do you have a lot of those old tapes? Do you listen to them and uh, ever you know, say like, oh, my God, that was me? I do have them. I never listen to them, though there's one that I play when I give speeches. Oh, really? Yeah. Just to say, like, this took me a really long time, especially when I'm talking to journalism students and things like that, to say, like, it took me a really long time. Like, it took me, like, longer than anybody I know to get competent at that. Um, and uh, I play them something from, from when I was 26 that's just, like, terrible. And, and, I, and I play it because I feel like sometimes you hear people who, you know, end up having decent jobs and decent work. And you hear them say like, "Oh no, I was, you know, I I wasn't that good at the beginning." It's like when you like a model saying like, "Oh, I wasn't pretty in high school or something." Like, and I feel like, "No, no, no I can I can prove this." And I say, "This is like not from your like two or three or four. This is from your seven when I'm about to play you. Like, I was 26. I've been doing this for a long time, and it's it's tar- horrible." But but it's interesting too. You're you're a singular voice. I mean, which is no easy task. I mean that that you know by all you know, critical standards. I mean, if we, if you were to go by broadcasting models, like in terms of what I do comedically, yeah, I wouldn't call myself an entertainer. And, you know, I'm not even, you know, I know what sort of, you know, what tradition I'm doing, but, you know, I'm not very consistent a lot of times and and I'm very raw and and I'm willing to take those risks and I find the people that that understand me and like me. So your voice in, in terms of how you do radio, it wouldn't be like a, like traditional radio voice. No. And it wouldn't be, you know, I think that at another time someone might have heard it and say, what's this kid doing? Uh, you know, but now... No, and in fact, I got that when, when we started doing this as a national show. When I started doing This American Life, like that right. was one of the reactions we got from program directors, which is just, there was a feeling of like, at that point I'd been a reporter for NPR and there was a feeling of like, well, he's nice as the reporter, but like he can't be the host. Can't like, drive where, a show. Yeah, like where's the adult? Like where's the where's the adult? Yeah, where's yeah. the adult? Is there a grown up in the room? Well, That's seriously, like you know, you just, yeah, stop yeah, playing the, with the knobs. Well, kind of. That was totally that was totally a thing of just like, <laughs> who is this kid? They really, yeah, yeah. And, and and this was and you were carried by a few affiliates or or like at the time that that was happening maybe you were, you were on one or two and then you were trying to get it uh, a wider yeah that's right yeah and and program directors were like yeah, this kid is is horrible it wasn't like he was horrible it's just they they were, they found it confusing like there was nothing else that sounded like that on the air 
And, uh, and now everything sounds like that on the air. Not Ira. to me. Did, no, I don't know what you're talking about. No, have you listened to Morning Edition and All Things Considered? They, no, they, no. They, I, those people were... I just mean that there is a style, that This American Life style, that, you know, there, there are certain comics you use who I know, like Mike and, uh, and Rakoff and, and Sedaris. Uh, there's a tone to, uh, to reporting and personal stories that you hear on NPR that definitely seem to be modeled after, after the way you present and and I, I believe that there's a lot of aspiring uh, male and female Ira Glasses in the world of public radio. Well, good luck to them. <laughs> That's what I say. My best wishes. And do you feel that you are doing, like, because you, you say that you're not honest or emotional or, or whatever it is that you're holding back, but it seems to me that you're, you're pretty true to yourself unless, you know, you go home and you're like, ah, I'm home, finally I can yell. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, no, it's you, not like that. No, 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 like no, no. I, no, I feel no, I feel I feel like I'm honest in the stories and I give my honest reactions and 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 say things that I honestly believe. But but um but but you know, I don't I I'm just not there as I'm not as personally on the line as in any of the little monologues that you do at the beginning of your podcast where you say um you know well, I'm going to talk to this guy, but I was kind of pissed off at him for a few years, and then I acted sort of like an ass, but then I apologized, and now I'm going to see him again. It's going to be a little awkward. Yeah, like 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 I never do any of that, you know. Like I, I, I and and also the fact that you're doing it, you don't even seem to be doing it off a script. Like I could show you the scripts that I'm doing. Like I'm doing everything off of like really? I write it down beforehand. I don't write and, anything down. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a really different set of skills. Like I feel like you have a really different set of skills. Like I'm coming at it from a really different. It took me a long time to do that, though. I mean, I you know I did radio. I actually interviewed you once on uh, on Air America on Morning Sedition uh, during the campaign. Wow! Uh, you know, I was on, I was the morning show at Air America when it was up at uh, WBRL. Is that what yeah. WBL? Uh, and, and did I come in? I remember going into Air America. Came in, yeah, I remember coming in. And I was a guy there, and you know, you were talking about Kerry, and you were talking about you know, how you weren't that into him, but we sort of had to be into him at that yeah. time. And, you know, I remember interviewing you and I remember being nervous at the time, but it was a, it was a group situation. It was yeah, sort I remember, of a liberal yeah, yeah. morning zoo. And I always worked with other people in radio and I needed to have a booth full of guys, you know, listening to me so I could gauge, you know, whether I was hitting or whether I was connecting. But when I learned to talk to myself or talk just into a mic and have the headphones on, it, 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 I was thrilled. It was a huge breakthrough for me to be able to have a consistent stream of consciousness on an, on a, on a, on a radio mic. I can't do that on a stand up stage. I can't do what I do on the on the podcast on a stand up stage because it because requires a different kind of focus. You can't do it with well, people. You're, you're, the sitting, context you is laughter. I mean, yeah. the context is you know da da da. I'm 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 going towards a laugh. Oh, of course, right. And, and if the laugh doesn't happen, then and on some level that's failed, or right. else on some level I have to accept that it's entertaining in a different way. Whereas when I'm talking like this or I'm talking alone in my garage that I'm talking directly from my feelings and and most of the conflict and struggles that I have I have decided are are valid and and I've decided that that the internal struggles of of what I've done in the past you know what I'm thinking about now and and you know who I am as a person is really w what I do and and in in a lot of my interviews and in, in this one included on some level is is me becoming a better person <laughs> I don't know if you realize that. Wow. But it, only in the sense that, like, I am, I was never a guy that talked to a lot of people. 
You know, like I, I have friends, but I always talked at people. I never had long conversations that were actually a back and forth where I listened and, and took things in. Right. Because I was so self-absorbed. So the the whole process of the podcast is that is so interesting. An to experiment me. in humility. There's 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 this thing that um that Keith, my mentor, used to say where he said a story, if it's working, is always an answer to the question, how should I live my life? Yeah. And I feel like that's what you're saying is the structure of the podcast. You're saying that that's kind of the structure of, of the interviews, that, that it's sort of like you're looking for the answer to a question for yourself. Well, really, when I listen to you or I, even when I'm coming over here, you know, my impression of, of the world that you live in is, is sort of a rarefied air to me that I, I believe that, like, you know, you, you have a, a lot of disciplined people that were relatively, you know, decently parented, that have a certain amount of discipline. You have a structure. You, 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 you seem to all be fairly sophisticated and, and educated and, and read books and things. This is the myth that I put yeah, together. Yeah, I know, boy. I, I want to take these point by point, but yeah. And, yeah. and, and that, you know, that your audience is very sophisticated in, in the sense that, you know, like I, I am in the middle of, of things. I, you know, I'm a bright guy, but I can also be very crass and, and very, uh, um, you know, sort of misguided in, in a lot of ways. And I make a lot of mistakes. And I look at this as, as like, you know, that is that is radio perfection in some in, in, in a way huh. and now I have to go in there and feel small like I'm walking over here going oh god now I gonna you know Ira's this you know he's Ira and everyone you know he's he's this mythic presence you know he is uh, the 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 perfect uh, radio and, and even when I'm talking to Verbiglia I'm like uh, you know you guys you, you have a, you don't frighten people you don't frighten people I have don't you, frighten people no. he doesn't either that's right yeah no Me, no no not so no, much no 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 yeah I, yeah yeah and, and you know, and, and there's part of me that always is struggling to be accepted, but I know that just by my natural intensity and my self-involved, you know, uh, kind of spinning, that people are going to be like, "Oh Christ, Marin's here." No one's going to say, "Oh Jesus, Ira Glass is going to spoil the party." That's just, <laughs> that has never happened. I think it could happen for some people, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. No, like, like the, I, th- I think that the aesthetic of what I'm making and who I am. By personality is like I want the material to I, I want I want to be liked like I want people to get the work I want people to get caught up in it and 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 like that's its primary motive and so the notion that we would make something that would be so in your face that people would get mad at us like it isn't it isn't like somehow it's just it, that is not who I that's not who or, I or am even to be or even to allow yourself to be rudderless I mean to, to have a lack of control around what you're doing I mean which is which is the way I'm yeah. choosing to do what I do yeah that like if you were to get on your show and go I don't know what the hell is going to happen today you know I, I don't feel right I'm not comfortable with this story uh, you know you know I'm an idiot because See, I, but that would be a great that would be that would be great radio I, I wish I were the right. person to pull that off well why can't you well that seems to be well I could I, I think I guess well, I don't what know. Your, feel... what, what are the struggles that you? What are the inner dialogues that Ira Glass has in, in a, you know uh, in terms of insecurity or in terms of uh, of of anger or in terms of your process when you're creating something? You know, as an artistic person, as a creator, what are the struggles that you have? I mean, partly it's just the struggle to, to just to just make the thing interesting. Like some of the stories are just not in, inherently interesting. Um, let me think for a second about like like what you're really asking me. Well, I, well have you ever like, have like, you like, ever said I can't do this anymore? You I, might not just have that in you. I don't know. Like like the last um I mean truthfully, like the last couple months, this summer somehow has been so horrible for me. Um where I thought 
where we were doing a tremendous amount of production, a tremendous amount of, of stuff on the show, where I thought I was going to get a break during the summer. And then I stumbled onto this one story that I just thought, like, oh, I have to do this. And then we needed me to do this other story just to fill out a show. And uh, there was a story that we did last week on the radio show about uh, this policeman named Adrian Schoolcraft. And uh, and it's kind of an amazing story. He, he secretly taped... Um, on his job at the NYPD for 17 months, including all sorts of stuff where his bosses were telling him and the fellow officers to do things that are illegal, mm-hmm. you know, making making illegal arrests and also taking real crimes and downgrading them to lesser crimes so their stats look better. And so we have him and we have the reporter who broke the story and we have these guys who are experts on this kind of thing. We have the the tapes, like all these incredible tapes of of, you know, these cops being bossed around by their bosses. And like, and really dramatic stuff happens to Schoolcraft as a result of of him. The, there's a huge retaliation against him, which he records within the force. Of, within the force, which he records, like Serpico, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And um, and and the entire time I was working on this story, I wanted to kill myself and kill everyone who was making me do it. And because uh, I Why? feel like. Because I just I just didn't want to do one more story. So it was just about the work. It's about the work. volume of work and also feeling like with something like that, at very best, all I'm doing is taking the reporter who broke the story for the Village Voice. At the very best, I'm like doing a cover version of a song that he's already recorded perfectly. You know what I mean? Right. Like at the very best, all I'm going to be is transparent. And then it's a really complicated technical thing to do. Like it's 40 minutes of radio and it's like you're weaving in all these different voices and all the sound and you're starting off with, you know, you know, like so much material. Just the interviews themselves are seven or eight hours. And just, you know, just like making the thing go is just like such a technical uh, kind of it's just like a, it's just a series of decisions, one after another after another. There's no shortcut to do, but just to like listen to it and then listen to it again and listen to it again and recut it and recut it and think about it. And should this part be in script or in tape? Right. It's a lot of work. It's a crazy amount and, of work. And it seemed unending. So you, the the dread came. Meanwhile, while we're in the middle of negotiating various contracts, and I'm supposed to be doing the pledge drive, and I'm writing pledge spots for Alec Baldwin and going into the studio with him. And, you know, and we have a show where we sent two people to Iraq and we have, you know, and like, you know, I'm occasionally getting drawn into discussions on like, what should the shape of this really be? And, you know, just like a lot of things going on around here at once. And, you know, and we have, uh, I don't know, it's like a lot of whining. So, right. and, 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 and so and so it's like it's just like t- too, too much of a thing. Yeah. And, it's then, overwhelming. And, then I f- and then I feel like also as a show. Mm hmm. Um, I feel like we should constantly be reinventing what we're doing, and 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 if I'm and in these weeks where I'm caught up for three or four days, just like in my room writing, there's no time to actually talk to anybody or think about like what's the next thing we're going to make up that no one's ever done, you know? Like 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 this past year, we've we've been on this huge effort to not only do more sort of hardcore investigative kinds of stuff, like these big shows about Haiti yeah. and healthcare and things like that. Yeah. But also just like weird stuff that we thought would be fun. Like we did a show of stories that our parents pitched to us. Right. Um, which was like incredibly difficult, <laughs> weirdly, um, because those stories, the story ideas are so such hard ones to do. And a show where we went to the nation's number one party school and a show where we went, where we all went, we basically just dropped into small towns in Georgia um, and each would have a day or two to find a story. And like, it's, and I feel like we need to be like 
finding more contributors and new contributors. There's like a lot of things that I feel like it would be nice if we could just run at as a staff, but like there's no time to to think about that. Have you ever because, had that moment where because you're busy, right? Yeah. Do you ever have moments when you're interviewing people in these different walks of life where you actually think like, you know, um, I don't have I'm not doing a real job. No, I never think that. It feels like a real job. It feels like a real job. But you but you feel that is your story personally as interesting as the stories that you're chasing? No. I don't feel like my story is as interesting as the stories I'm chasing. I mean, the stories where it's good It'll be somebody who's saying something that I find that I can relate to in a particularly personal way. But um, but but that can be almost any kind of story, really, if the person is expressive enough and, 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 and kind of the right kind of connection happens between me and them. Um, it's like it's so weird because... No, like, do you feel like, oh, am I, do, am I really, is this really a job? That's like a question that, that happens for you? Well, what the question is, is that, you know, when I look at my life or, or, or the, the scope of my life or, or what my life is, because like, you know, what you responded to in my voice is that, you know, I spin a lot of plates, you know, all the time and they're the same plates. Like, you, you know, like there, there's a there's a point where I'm sort of like, I don't know if I'm ever going to change. And right. I know. But 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 the thing that makes something, you know, the thing that makes something good is if is if somebody's talking in a way where where it's relatable. And I and I feel like the way that you talk about yourself is is relatable and so and so and so it's possible for there to be a connection that's that's that well, that has so much feeling yeah, as a no, listener. I, well, I I I I am confident in that, but a lot of times, like you know, I wonder, like you know, for instance, like I've I've actually pitched stories to your show, and this is this is how 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 weird I am. Yeah, like I, I'm on the list, and, okay, and, and occasionally I've you know I've I've mailed one in, but like I don't have a sense like of my life. Being like there was this like I don't remember what the show was that you were doing, but I had this incident happen to me that I for some reason in my mind thought like this would be a This American Life story. Okay, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Well, what I I don't remember what show it was for. That doesn't matter. Like what? What do you remember the incident? Of course, I remember the incident. The incident was, uh, you know, I was divorced. I was in the middle of my divorce, and I'd met a woman, and we started having a, a fling. And it was very intense. It was very sexual. Uh, it was crazy because she, she would only come over during the day and whatnot. And she said she had been, you know, she was separated as well. And we were both sort of heartbroken and this and that. And then after a certain point, uh, she, you know, I break it off and she shows up at my house uh, at, at night, you know, sort of half drunk saying I'm here. And I'm like, I, I don't understand. I, and she goes, didn't you want me here? And I'm like, no. So I thought she was losing her mind. It turns out she tells me after a while, she finally fesses up because she keeps coming at me after a certain point. She didn't want to end it. And she fesses up that she had never been separated, that she had told me she was separated, that she was still with the man she was with. They had two kids and that she was doing it behind his back. And he had caught on and it set up an email account that looked like my name. He had set up an email account and to look like me <laughs> and was it was sending her emails to meet me and stuff. OK. And, and so she was showing up thinking that I had I had told her to come over with this email and it turned out it was her husband or the guy that she lived with. Wow. So he knew all of this, right? And then like when she came over and told me that, I, I thought to myself, well, I don't know this guy. This, this could get me hurt. This is a lot of trouble. And, and I really had no idea and I felt like a victim in this situation to a certain degree because I wouldn't do that. Like I call her phone to tell her to, you know, to make sure she deals with this, you know, like on her way home. And then he answers the phone. And I go, you know, who's, he goes, who's this? I go, it's Mark. And then I knew the guy's name by that point. I said, is this so-and-so? He goes, yeah. And he go, and I just said, look, I, 
I, I don't know. I didn't know anything about this. I would never have done that to you. I feel horrible about what I put you through because I, I certainly wouldn't have done that had I known you guys were still involved and, and I was misled and, and, it's, and, and I feel awful about it and I just want to apologize for that. And he goes, well, I appreciate that. And, and uh, at least somebody's telling me the truth, right? And then she, like, you know, after a week or so, she sends, she sends me an email and copies him on it saying, you guys, you know, I screwed everything up. You guys should really be friends. Um, you know, you guys would get along great together. I'm an idiot. And it was just crazy. And, and then I had run, like, I thought this was guy was going to kill me because there was this other point where he knew who I was and he saw me in my car yeah. and he chased me down in his truck after this. No, this was in the middle. I don't know. Okay, and, okay. You know, and, and he was up alongside of me and I didn't know who he was. And he goes, you're that comedian, aren't you? And, he's, and I go, yeah. He goes, you think you're a pretty smart guy, don't you? I had no idea who he was. I go, I guess so. He goes, yeah, all right. I know who you are, basically, and, and, and storms off. So I felt threatened and I realized who he was. And I thought that for some reason was an American Life moment where I, I called her and I got him on the phone and, and we had And that. you and he make it right. Yeah. It was, huh. it was sort of dramatic. But then I run into him again at the at, in a parking lot in the bank. By this point, I knew what he looked like. And I'm walking on the bank, and he's walking towards me. And it was one of these words, like, what am I going to get hit? W where are we with this? And he literally was like, hey. And I'm like, hey. He's like, you know, uh, look, I just want you to know that everything's cool with us and that, you know, we know common people. And, you know, that was a hard part of my life. And uh, but but, you know, and I said, well, I you know, apologize. He says again. this to you. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, I just I just want you to know that that, uh, you know, I'm sorry I behaved that way and I chased you down in my truck and, and that kind of stuff. And and that uh, and I said, well, is everything working out or what? He's like, you know, we're trying and, and, and uh, I appreciate your honesty in that. And we walked away from it. It's crazy. That's a crazy story. <laughs> Though I have no idea if that could be a story on the radio on the radio on our show. And and it's it's not it's not clear to me like what like what is that story like like Yeah, mean? tell me what it does. Okay, so let's approach it like an American life story. Now what do you look for when you do that? I mean there's gotta be a plot. The plot's gotta be surprising. So it's got that. Um and there's gotta be somebody to relate to. So it's got you, so it's got that. But it's like, what is? What's the story about? Is it about? Is it? Is it about like like you're being caught off guard twice in this thing? Where where first you think the relationship is you and her, and you've got this like fling going, and then you find out no, no, it's not that because she's been lying about her situation, and then and then you're scared, like you think it's a second situation, right? Like so, it flips from like I could one get kind killed. Of, I don't know this guy, right? And then. It would have a period where you're scared, right? Yeah. Like so, there's a first period where it's just like easy. The second period, it's scared. And for that to really work best, the first part has to seem really easy, and she has to seem great. And in the second part, your perception of her has to totally. It sounds like it did totally change to like, is she nuts? Um, and 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 what's she doing? And suddenly, and this figure who seemed like oh, this figure of fun suddenly turns out to be like this totally creepy. Who are you, sort of figure? Yeah. So that's kind of interesting, um, but what it would and then and then it flips again because now he's the frightening figure too. At first, she flips from being kind of a sympathetic figure in your life to an unsympathetic figure, and then he flips from being this frightening figure to being like, okay, we can understand each other. And I feel like what you'd need is something that you plant at the beginning of the story, or some question that's going through your head, or some anxiety that's going on in your life that can resolve with him. 
Oh, okay. With that moment. I see. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like it's almost like it needs it needs a through line or, or, or it needs a mission in a way as a story. It, ne- it needs a question at the beginning. It needs you to be struggling with something that gets resolved in that moment with him on the phone. Well, I think that, that if it was anything, it was that, you know, I, in my reaction to my uh, ex leaving me, I, I reacted out of, out of spite and I did everything I could include, you know, do a one-man show about her out of spite primarily. And and I I did everything I could to uh, to make her life difficult for leaving me, and and this guy was in a similar situation though they had kids and right. that me having this moment of empathy with him and realizing his pain and how he handled it which was very different than the way I handled my situation oh. was, was really a higher road. Yeah, I don't know what he put her through, but if I were him, I would never have stopped hating me. Huh. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Well. Well. Like That's interesting. That's interesting, especially that and 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 just structurally in a story, if your character was looking for the higher road from the beginning in some way, I mean to play it all out like this, it sounds so corny. Do you know what I mean? Like well, it all sounds it all sounds really. like such such corny building blocks or something. But but what are the fundamental building blocks? I see what we just did with that story, but when you have a story, what has to be present for you? I mean, like like like, like mostly like the thing has to be. I mean, it's weird, you know, like, like, a, like, like partly it's just the fact pattern of the story has to be kind of interesting and the world of it has to be kind of interesting. It's like, it's like a song, like some songs, the melodies are just like more appealing just inherently. And that's mm-hmm. true for a story too. Like the characters and the setting and the plot are just inherently more kind of exciting to listen to. So it needs that. And then just in terms of the way we talk about it here amongst ourselves, there has to be a plot, there has to be individual scenes and moments that you can name where things change and people see something different and people where things are revealed, where there's tension, normal dramatic tension and things things come come to a head. And then and then because it's radio partly and radio is such like a talky medium, you you want there to be some idea in it. You you like like I think generally most radio stories work work best if if they're described, if if where they lead you to is some thought about the world, um, either that you've had before but haven't really felt so much, or that you haven't had before, mm-hmm. and um, and so you want the plot to be surprising, you want the idea about the world to be surprising. Again, to lay it out loud like this sounds very formulaic, but but within that structure, that's kind of what within the structure of what we do, it's which is super traditional storytelling. I mean, it really is just like. Things proceed chronologically mostly on the show, and 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 we're telling very traditional sorts of stories, and and getting very tra- traditional kind of like narrative satisfaction out of it, um, like that. That's that's what you need. Can I say like you know the word that you the the, the way that you constantly describe yourself is self-involved um, throughout this whole hour. And and I have to say, like that would totally be the way I would describe myself. That would be the first thing I would say, like in talking to people about myself, like like you know, in in, in with the people who I'm close to, like like I think I think I think that would that would absolutely be the first way I would describe myself. I'm incredibly self-involved, but in some sort of sneaky way, in the guise of being interested in other people. I mean, I actually am deeply interested in other people, and and and. Uh, well, I think but, but in even... my actual life, like like what I really am is very self-involved in the project of making the stuff that I like to make. But I think that we both share the experience of being in conversation, being engaged in, in these moments on the mic and in, in something that is very, uh, is it the word visceral and, and immediate, even if it's scripted. But when you're, when you're talking to another individual, that, that Im- implies, you know, in, just by, this, by the fact that there's an other there that those are the moments where if we are listening, we are not self-involved. 
Yeah. So that that is where we live our life. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that the authenticity of what you do when you're in conversation with somebody is what makes the humanness so you know, palpable and, and so engaging. And, and I think that's, that's the beautiful thing about people in general. And, and, I, and I find that when I'm doing it, and, and in terms of saying that it helps me in my life, is that when I, I, if, you, if left to my own devices, I, and if I wasn't in comedy or radio, I, I, don't, I think I'd drift away into isolation and just sit and think about shit all the time. And I don't know how much I would talk to other people. I have longer conversations on my show than I have in my real life at ever. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I do too. Like, like, like a friend once said about me, like she gets asked, like, what's it like? Like, what am I like in real life? And she's like, well, he's like that, but he never talks to you for that long. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because you know? like, we're thinking. Or something. I don't know. I don't, th- I don't feel proud of it. Well, like, you- I, know it's, I know that it's not good. But, but uh, I mean, and, and I also know that like like one of the reasons, like the only way that you could become as obsessed with, you know, creating an hour of radio where people are talking and every moment has meaning, like the, the only kind of person who would go into a project like that is somebody who is awkward in, you know, in, in actual like social situations. Do you know what I mean? Like in, in real conversations, I, I've had to like, as you know, like train myself, you know, through adolescence and into adulthood to like to to be present and to be right. and 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 to interact with people and and I feel like and and I feel like it's that kind of focus that I brought to like making interviews happen and stories happen on the radio and in a way like that's it's like you're saying like the most alive moments that you feel is when you're interacting in that way I I mean I feel like the most um like the easiest kind of interaction I have is is the convers the conversations I have in making the stories for the show, right? I mean, other conversations I'm fine with. Like, I adore the people I work with. I'm I have no like I'm not crazy. Like, I like I'm close to people, but but I know that the 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 easiest, then often the most fulfilling, and usually the longest conversations of my day are are the ones that happen when I'm getting tape. Yeah, and do, when you were, do, and in are, a way, the most intimate, the most yeah, intimate. Absolutely, it, I feel that way with crowds. I'm more intimate and more emotionally open with crowds and when with people I talk to on the show than I am in my personal life. My personal life's a disaster uh, emotionally, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways. And 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 it's just, th- I guess, this is the 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 reason why we picked this th- to be our life's work, and and the reason why it functions for us is that we are able to to get out of ourselves. W- were you a person, or are you a person that that thinks about what people are thinking about you? In any, not any, in the audience. No, no, but I mean, like in in life, growing up, we, you know, because I find that being insulated in myself, that being self-involved, like if I'm in conversation, I'm making assumptions about what the other person thinks about me. I'm only that way in the most like worried kind of way, where like I'm worried that I'm getting someone else mad, or I'm worried that they're bored, or I'm worried. Like I don't have a, like a positive version of it where I think. Right. Yeah, where yeah, I think yeah. like they, they oh I, they they really like me now like I don't like that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't that's that's harder to penetrate. Have you ever felt threatened or or like you were in uh, a situation on the air or in an interview where you didn't know if you could handle the emotions that were being stirred up in your subject or or in a conversation or that no. you thought that they would no. be mad at you? Well, there are times where I think that they might be mad at me because because. Especially in the like the real reported pieces, like like if somebody's doing something and we're documenting it or I'm documenting it, and I disagree with them or I'm going to say you know if I want to say something negative about them on the air, 
it's not just like kind of a good rule of thumb, but I feel like it's only human decency to say it to their face. And so any, so I go into the interviews knowing like, okay, I know this is kind of where they stand and I'm going to have to confront them about this and this and this. And, and, uh, and, you know, because I want to be able to say it about them or like, this is my theory about them. I need to test it on them and give them a chance to defend themselves. And, um, and so, so I can be very nervous with that. <laughs> Isn't that a rush, though? I mean, knowing that you have to do that, and it's like even if it's a decent thing to do, it's not necessarily the first thing you want to do. Yeah. I mean, it's a discipline. Like, yeah. you know, when you're working up to that moment where I'm, I've got to call him on this shit. Well, your Mencia interview, I feel like, was, like, masterful. I feel like uh, the second Mencia interview was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. It, and, and, like, he just kept going. Yeah. It didn't stop. Yeah, yeah. But, I don't, but yeah. I don't get so much of a rush out of it. I, I feel like I don't get so much of a rush out of it. For me, it's just like, oh. Uh, oh, see, I would call that a rush. Oh, really? Well, I mean, the anxiety? I mean, rush, yeah, rushes aren't necessarily good all the time. Oh, oh really? <laughs> yeah, a lot of times rushes <laughs> are just like, I'm doing this. You're not like, this is fun, but oh, here oh, we okay. go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, then I, then I definitely get that. Yeah. Well, that's being alive. That, yeah. That's what makes it, you know. Yeah. When you talk on the mic, are, are you talking knowing that your relationship with your listeners is a one-on-one relationship yeah of course i mean you can't you can't perform on radio unless you feel that yeah you have to be talking to one person and you know that in your head yeah that's just like at this point i'm not even thinking about that that's just built into me yeah why yeah and you are too right yeah yeah it's the only way i i I can think about it yeah yeah well i think we've done it Is that is that the dramatic end of the podcast? I think, think we've I, done it. I think it's faked. I think we're done. There's the, the, that's our arc. Da, do you have kids? No. Yeah. Do you? No. I've had two wives. I have no kids. You have yeah. a wife. I have a wife. That's good. Yeah. I that's going. One right that's now. going good. It's going good. Yeah. That's good. It's not easy, is it? No, it's not easy. <laughs> no, she would say the same. I think. She, I feel like I can say that safely, knowing she's going to hear every word of this. <laughs> Does she listen? Of yeah, she's a big listen. fan of your podcast. Yeah. She yeah, is? She was listening before me. Oh. Is she the one that said that the interesting thing about the Maria Bamford interview is when you realize that uh, that I'm exactly the kind of man that Maria is talking yes. about? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, how did you... Like, yeah, she did say that. Well, because I yeah. talked to Berbiglia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, She's, and, yeah, yeah. She said yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then that... And I have to say, I listened to the Maria Bamford interview, and that does make it really, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, in fact, I, I listened to it thinking, like, I wonder if this is, like, happens fast enough to work on our show. But it doesn't happen quite quick enough. I was just like, God, it's what a natural scene. But it doesn't. It doesn't happen quite explicitly enough to just to just excerpt. Yeah, um, well, I can't. You know, I mean, I can't draw those kind of things where I'm having a conversation. I was so thrilled to just have the conversation because she's like this unique, angelic being. Uh, and when I knew I was going to be locked in a car with her for an hour, I was like, oh, my God, this is it. This has got to happen. <laughs> and we're driving down the street holding these mics. That we're but holding. wait, did you know when you got in the car that she was going to tell you this story that was no, going to be so nothing. similar to your own story, but no. her perspective? I knew nothing. I don't know much about people I talk to. I mean, our approaches are so different. A lot of the people that I talk to... Like, you know, I listen to your show, but I'm not, you know, I don't know everything about you and I'm not, you know, I I don't have time to listen to a lot of stuff. People like Mencia, I I don't really know him. And I only knew what I went into that interview was how does a guy who is this hated publicly, you know, live with himself? That, that, that's a good question. Yeah, that, that was that's really, all you need. And and why is he in 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 and why is he getting this short? You know, like he is a comedian, and I didn't know the full story. See, this is how my investigative journalism works: is that I did that first interview without all the facts, 
And he was basically just steamrolling me. And, and he had a whole deliberate, like he was going to reinvigorate his career and, and redefine himself on my podcast. And after I did that, I was like this, I can't put that up. Yeah. And then they, and then some guys said, well, go talk to these other guys. And then when I, I was able to say, well, what about this? What about this? And what about this? And just to see the turmoil and pain of this guy. I know. It made it so much fun to listen to. It was so interesting. It just really un unspooled in a really nice way. Yeah. I got to listen to it again. It's very dramatic. Yeah. Well, this was, I, I found pretty dramatic for me. I think we did good. Do you feel satisfied? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't expect, uh, you know, like, I didn't expect you to come unraveled. You didn't want me to cry. <laughs> I, that would have been good, but 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 you know what? I, I think, Next time, <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there's no way I was going to get at it. So I will try to uh, to figure out a. I usually don't talk about being self involved. I think it's the first time I ever talked about that on an interview. Really? Yeah. I think what, you know people accept that with us, but I still think that the, that what you're doing for people, what I learned from radio, and what I learned with the podcast more than anything else, is that you know honesty, however it comes out. Uh, and and sharing the human experience in an intimate way has you know, it, it it really helps people feel not alone. And I, I think not what you yeah, do I think so. that you, you know whatever you may think of it or whatever reason that people listen to it that the struggles that you're capturing and and what you're drawing out of people really makes people it, it creates a community in in a weird way of people who are listening to you alone you know, feel not alone. All right, good. Is that good? Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, Ira. Okay. Okay, that's it, folks. That was uh, me and Ira Glass. It happened. I feel like it went well. And I heard back from somebody that uh, Ira was um, was actually learned something from, from my interview style. It's not clear uh, what he learned or whether he'll be using it, but uh, uh, I heard uh, things from a friend that, uh, that I, it did have an impact on him. And uh, certainly, uh, talking to Ira had an impact on me, and that was um, that was a good one. It's a good experience for me because I always, you know, I thought, yeah, I thought Ira was untouchable, and uh, I, 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 I believe I touched him. I know I did. I, I shook his hand. Anyways, that is the show. Uh, please go to wtfpod.com uh, and do some things. Get on the mailing list so you know what's going on. Uh, kick a few shekels into the hat if you could. Throw me a couple bucks. I could use the jack, the bread, the green. Uh, this is how I make a living. Uh, that is the truth. So if you could do that, go to the donate button, buy some of the new t-shirts. There's a lot of fun things. And I believe we're going to create a new site soon. That's a little easier to navigate. Go, go get the, uh, the app. There's a WTF app. You can go to, uh, on, uh, iTunes, look up WTF Mark Marin and get yourself that, uh, that app thingy. All right. Punchline magazine, just coffee.coop. Uh, you know, the, you know, the score. I'm going to uh, I'm going to Costco now. I'll talk to you later.